0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: Democracy isn't just this brainchild of these founding fathers, these geniuses, some gift they've bequeathed us, but actually something that's really been propelled and expanded by people who weren't even included.
2: Hello, welcome to The Clown Show on The Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a good episode. This is the kind of episode where I went into it thinking it would be one conversation. That I knew what conversation it would be. And then in doing the research and reading the person's book, uh, totally changed and changed my thinking on a lot of things. My guest today is Astra Taylor, who is the author of the new book, the best titled book in recent memory. Democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. Um, she's also uh, the documentarian behind the companion movie, uh, What is Democracy?, which you can get on Amazon or wherever you get your documentaries. And both of these projects are, are fascinating. Uh, Astra Taylor, she's um, it was a musician. She is a debt activist. She was big in Occupy Wall Street. Um, she's a documentarian. But these are, are are two pieces of work, pieces of art, pieces of philosophy that are grappling with this really interesting question of what is democracy. And I would not have thought it was such an interesting question, actually. Um, I thought I had a pretty good idea what democracy was. But as she unpacks it and wrestles with it, the question of who gets included and how they are included and what kinds of um, signals should be included and taken and, and and accepted and what kinds of protections you need to be in it. I'm very used to arguing for the boundaries of democracy within an American context, but trying to think of democracy within a philosophical context is a really important thing to do. And the way she does it allows us to get into all kinds of fascinating things here from um, whether or not trees and rivers should have democratic legitimacy of some kind, people are suing to make that happen. Um, how you should think about people who are not citizens, whether or not we should have democratic representation by lottery. Um, how you think about the relationship between equality and freedom; those have been cleaved in many ways in, in our democracy. Um, but but you can argue they're 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 quite together. Whether there should be workplace democracy, um, whether animals should be understood as persons or at least having some level of democratic say or protection uh what you should think about ai and robots what are the faculties that we really value in people what do we value in human beings just in general that makes them part of our we part of our demos worthy of having rights and something that i love about the way astra approaches this is there's a, a real comfort with paradoxes with ambiguity with hard questions that don't have good answers uh it's most of the hard questions that are worth asking don't have good answers. And it's a really difficult thing. And I can say this is somebody who's writing a book and does a lot of this kind of work. It's really hard to resist being pushed into pretending you have an answer. And sometimes it's really the exploration that's the thing. Um, so we do a lot of exploration in this episode. And I hope you enjoy it. I certainly did. Uh, you can email me with guest ideas, with thoughts, with feedback at Kleinshow at Vox.com. Again, Kleinshow at Vox.com. But here is Astra Taylor. Astrid Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start. Your book has the best title of any book in a very long time that I've seen. I would love to know how you came to it and like what the runner-up title was.
1: There was no runner-up title. It was sort of the title made the book, right? Once this phrase came to me, democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. I was like, yes. Yes. And I actually tried to make it the title of the companion film, and I was nixed. People were like, no, movies need to have a title that is one or two words. This is too literary. So I was I was just pleased that I found a home for it. Um, but it really is meant to convey you know, my ambivalence because I'm quite a radical person, you know, and I look around and I think, gosh, this is not democracy. This is not a just society. I'm so disappointed. I'm outraged. I'm indignant. And yet— there's there's progress that's been made that can go into reverse, that can be lost. And we have to be attentive to that. We have to, you know, cultivate that. So I wanted to capture my own complex relationship to this idea of democracy. And so the title, I think, does that really well.
2: Ambivalence is such a great word for for the way you approach at least some of this in the book. Uh, for people who haven't read it, every chapter is framed around two ideas that are, are or are not potentially intentioned. You know, I've been writing a book, and and it's so hard in writing writing a book or writing a piece, whatever, to convey ambivalence. There's something about the format that that really pushes you towards having it all figured out, right? the uh, the uh, the authorial authority. And it's really interesting to read something where somebody is just struggling through the contradictions of something that is worth struggling through the contradictions of. And so, before we get into the meat of it, I'm curious just about. about the genesis of that approach. Um, Usually when people write a book, they write about something they've decided to say as opposed to something they've decided to explore. And I'm curious how how you got to doing the latter.
1: I'm really happy that you appreciate that because for me, that's so essential to how I see the world and how I think politics really is. Politics is messy. It's complex. And there's, you know, as someone who's concerned with ethical issues, with social justice, you know, the world can can be very black and white, you know, but there's something that kind of when you get too polarized, you get too sort of definite in your your point of view, or you're just, you've written too many op-eds, you know, at 800 words saying this is the problem, this is the solution, your thinking kind of ossifies, and I don't know, it starts to feel untrue to me. So I wanted to write something that had, um, I, I don't know, kind of realistic complexity and also wasn't uh was principled without being dogmatic right so how do you have a sense of complexity without losing the moral force and for me the the framework of these paradoxes when when that came to me it actually came to me when i was driving around and i was like okay this is it you know this is this is a way that i can frame the problem and the possibility of democracy by sort of excavating these tensions and putting them front and center, then I felt I could really approach it in a way that was, you know, authentic to me and hopefully helpful. Because the the book is really me trying to think through why democracy is so hard to do, why it's so hard to put into practice as an activist, as an organizer, as someone interested in politics, uh, but also why it remains something that we have to stay engaged with, we have to keep fighting over.
2: I love that idea of being principled without being dogmatic. I've joked with people before that We should all write our pieces and then just at the end of every piece, in parentheses, it's just say, or maybe not.
1: Well, I think this, you know, it's also the philosophical orientation. And that, you know, philosophy is about questioning. Uh, You know, Richard Hofstadter, the the historian, has a phrase I really like from his book, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life. And he says, you know, intellectual is someone who can turn anything into a question, what is democracy? That's the name of of the companion film. And I the question mark is really important because I try in in both the film and the book to give an account of some important historical facts and reality, right? what the struggles that have taken place and and the problems we're facing. But that question is really key, the philosophical impulse to say, well, hold on, how do we know? That this is the right thing. How do we want to live together? That's the Socratic question. And so, you know, I think that the philosophical orientation is actually really crucial because as I say in the preface of the book, democracy demands philosophy. It's not just about punditry. It's not just about policy. It's not just about convincing someone through your rhetoric to join your side. I really think it's about thinking together.
2: Well, to lay out my experience of, of the book a bit. So I've been thinking a lot recently about democracy in America, and I'm writing this big piece about how democracy should actually be the central political priority. Um, I wish it were true for everybody, but but practically true on on the left, because everything flows from that. And in writing this, I thought I had a pretty good idea of what I meant by democracy. Like, I really agree that we don't have a democracy, but I thought I knew what it meant to say we could. I thought I knew what that underlying concept would be if we achieved it. And the thing your book does really well is excavate the invisible assumptions that have been bred into our idea of democracy, and in particular, our idea of who should be included in democracy, and how many of them now we take for granted, even if, maybe like me, you thought that you were somebody who believed in an expansion of the franchise, an expansion of who gets to be included in the democracy. So I, I wanted to talk a bit about that. I mean, in our idea of who who counts as the we, as Wendy Brown said it to you, who Counts and who do we not even think of as counting?
1: Democracy, if you go back to its origins, this the the word, right? So which we inherited from the ancient Greeks. So they didn't invent the practice of democracy in the sense of people collectively making decisions, but they gave us this word, and I think it's a great word, the demos, the people rule or have power, kratos and so this question of who the people is and then the question of how they rule those are those are baked into the the word that we use every day and these are abstractions the people doesn't just exist in the way that a king or a queen exists right that one person who makes all the decisions so this is why, again, democracy actually demands a sort of philosophical orientation by definition, because you have this abstraction governing itself. What does it mean for this abstraction to make decisions? Who are the people? And you're exactly right. We take for granted what is historically a rather expanded conception of the people, because if we go back to Athens, for example, women were excluded. Enslaved people were excluded. Foreigners were excluded. And actually the Demos contracted um. At various junctures. We go back to the founding of this country. It was also founded on unfreedom and exclusion of indigenous people, of enslaved people, of women, of men without property, of of foreigners um, who were not welcomed. And so there are two things I want to say about this. One is we actually we can't get away from this question of who the people are, because in a world with over 7 billion people, rapidly expanding human population, it's hard to envision a democratic process that includes everybody. Maybe there could be some sort of federated system, but I think there has to be some sort of boundaries around decision-making so that those decisions are accountable, and so people can have a say over the decisions that affect their lives. I think then there's a more visionary question, which is, well, who are we to think we're at the end of history? And we know who all the people are who ex- are are included, Right. Uh, the question of who counts as a citizen, that's something that's very um, malleable and open to debate over time. There's no reason that the requirements that we take for granted uh, based in blood and soil have to be there eternally. We could imagine other types of citizenship based on residency. Who knows? Maybe citizenship that transcends geography. And also we could think about citizenship, as I write at one point in the book, you know, beyond Human beings. What would it mean to include other kinds of creatures in the people in the polity? Um, so there are movements to have rights of nature and rights of animals. I mean, you know, or what's going to happen with AI? I just think we have to realize we're not at the we're not at the end of this democratic process. And I like I take heart in the idea that we are, you know, we're just one chapter in this unfolding story. We don't know what's going to happen
2: next. I was reading just randomly. Uh, it was actually on Marginal Revolution, the uh, the blog. A proposal that you would weight votes by age. So younger people who would be around for longer, their vote would just be weighted more heavily because they were going to have to sit around with the consequences of the decision making for much longer. And whether or not that's a good idea or not, um, the point Alex Tabark made was we just should have more experimentation in models of democratic decision making, I, I think you talk at one point in, in, in the book later when you're talking about the ways in which you've had representation by lottery in some systems, that we now take the fundamental building blocks of democratic governance for granted, but there's no real reason to believe that we've figured this out in some permanent or uh, utopian way.
1: Yeah, I, I actually kind of like that proposal. I mean, just because we it, it's a, also a way of correcting for some of the problems with the system as we have it right so right now votes are weighted according to the arbitrary factor of geography that's our um, the american system is you know not a system of one person one equally weighted vote depending on where you live your your the vote you cast in you know a senate race really differs you know depending on what state you inhabit and the geography actually affects the power of youth voting because younger people are moving to cities, right, to cities where their votes actually end up weighing less than sort of rural Americans who tend to be older. So it's a really interesting thought experiment to, th- to say, okay, well, what if we actually weighed young people's votes in a different way? And also, how do we think about the issue of, of time, which is, a, which is my favorite chapter of the book is actually the one about how do we balance the needs of the present with those of the future and think about future generations? But the main point you made, which is, there's all sorts of other ways to structure democracy and still have it fall under that rubric. Like, this is not, let's not take our system for granted is so key. But I think what you said, I want to get back to this idea of, you know, your assumption that we should put democracy at the center of our thinking, because I had to come around to that. That wasn't really where I was when I began this project. So I'm curious why it was that that word, you did, did you think that we had like had a democracy or that was a word you always valued? Because I came from a more... Ambivalent to use that word. I came from a more ambivalent spot. So my
2: path on this, and and I want to say that I think my thinking on democracy is more bounded and linear than than yours has been, which is one reason I appreciated the book so much. But I come at this from the perspective of policy reporting. So my background is I've covered healthcare and the economy and the financial crisis and and, and the policymaking process. And over and over and over again, what I watch happen is the beginning of a process is. Expansive with possibility, not just the possibility of what could be done, but also the possibility of what kinds of things could be better than what we have now, and also the possibility that the answer could be positive some, that many different kinds of people could look at what you get next and think it is better than what we currently have. And then I watch as the political system collapses that possibility down and down and down and down into a zero-sum choice by the end. And in particular, the zero-sum choice is who should win the next election. Because if the governing party gets to pass something, that makes them look better. And if it fails, um, that makes them look worse. But as I've kind of followed this, the other thing that I've noted is the central reason that people cannot get the policy outcomes they want is that the system is not set up to allow public opinion to be that strong. I mean, as you say, it's a system set up to wait land, not people. And so, you know, I, I sit there and I'm currently in in, in one of these now in, in these sort of big arguments about, you know, Medicare for all or Medicare for more, should it be Medicare extra or, you know, what kind of single payer national health system would be the absolute best? And the answer really is that they're all going to die in the Senate, even as I spend my time arguing about it too. And then the Final thing that I think has raised it in importance in my mind is we're living in a pretty deeply undemocratic moment. I mean, right now you have the president is a runner up in the popular vote. Republicans won fewer votes in the last three Senate cycles, so a whole kind of full Senate cycle. Um, They should be the minority party if that was um, a popular vote question. Because of the disproportionate representation in the Senate and the Electoral College, the right now controls the Supreme Court, too, which would have gone to, to to more left-leaning justices if things had been reflective of public opinion. And that is going to transform policy in this country for a generation. And so for me, it's been a process of recognizing that all the policy reporting and thinking and ideating and interviewing I can do is fine and great and wonderful – but that if you're worried about what pol- what actually happens to people you have to move upstream before you can before you really have the debate about policy or the debate about how policy is made and i would like to see policy made and outcomes decided in a much more democratic fashion than what we have now and we happen to be in a moment where we are extremely extremely in violation of whatever democratic ideals we pretend to hold
1: yeah, I agree and this is a problem that long precedes, you know, the 2016 election, right? This has to do with the sort of building blocks of our political structure in this country and and you know, old debates about who should have power. <laughs> and so there's questions, you know, I think it's exactly right to say that it's not just about sort of winning winning the argument or having the best policy, but having power and also really having an assessment of the sort of rules of the game as they're as they're written right now and also looking ahead to see how they're going to be changed. You know, the debate right now around democracy is often framed in terms of populism and the tyranny of the majority and you know people's unruly passions got us into this political mess and my answer to that is always that we actually need to pay more attention to tyranny of the minority of these veto points in our political system. You know, the Supreme Court, the Senate um, and the outsized power that that, you know, people with deep pockets wield in this in this situation. So these are the ways to understand how we don't have democracy. But for me, that word, um, what's interesting is as I did this project, you know, in the beginning, I thought, OK, you know, this word democracy is so corrupted. It's so abused. It was used to describe the system, which, as you just laid out, you know, is not a, is not representative is not uh, accountable to the people is not following the will of the people who you know would like healthcare reform overall um, who would like to see action on on the climate who would like to see some sort of gun control right so how can we call this a democracy um, and that you know Growing up in the aughts after 9-11, you know, hearing people like George W. Bush talk about bringing democracy to the Middle East, you know, I just thought this word is, I'm over it. I don't want to hear this again. But through doing this project, I've really come to see democracy as a sort of lodestar, as something very radical. If we followed it through to its logical conclusions, we'd have a very dis- different system, which is why elites have always been skeptical of it.
2: And something that I, I like in the way you put that is, This idea of following it through to its logical conclusions is there are certain issues where it's very clarifying to think about what we tell children about them or what children think of them. And all the crust and superstructure of rationalization we add on for ourselves is often just making the thing worse. And when you grow up and you attend civics class in this country, you're told we're a democracy. You know, you're also told we're, we're a democratic republic. But the Republic part is actually supposed to be emanated by democracy. That's not the particular way right now in which we get distorted. The issue is not the Republic side of it. Um, the issue is how the Republic is chosen, which is non-democratically. And there are certain things where there's a simplicity in what we claim to believe. And I think that it is can be hard to convince ourselves that there is just truth in what we say. And this is one of those places, it often appears to me that the fight is not between what we believe and, and what we do. It's between what we believe and our willingness to simply stare that in the face. It always feels true to me that you can see a injustice sometimes in the rationalizations we do to explain why the things we say are true about ourselves are not actually true.
1: Interesting. I mean, when I was making the film, What is Democracy?, that sort of preceded the book, I took my camera crew out into the street. In Florida, in North Carolina, in California, in uh, New York City, in the financial district. And I just sat there and I asked strangers, "What is democracy?" right? what What is it? And people would actually, you know, think they knew the answer and then kind of falter when they were sitting there with me because they didn't really have a very profound or personal definition. And so this was this was my takeaway was actually that, yes, we say we're a democracy, but it's not something that we have very much experience in because, you know, yes, we have elections periodically, but actually people feel quite distanced from those. They feel quite disappointed. They feel quite disempowered. People don't have democracy at their workplace, right? You walk into your place of employment and someone else is in charge. There's a kind of tyrannical relationship happening there people don't really have democracy in their school. Sure, they learn about it in their civics class, but it's not something that they actually um, practice. So I think there's something that to me is interesting, right? It's that we say we're this thing, we claim to value it, and yet it's something that we have almost no experience with. And I think that that is, that's one of the, the gaps that I think we need to bridge. Um, and it's also why you know, when people say, "Oh, Americans don't really care about democracy or they're not politically engaged, I just think it's it's something um, you know, I, I felt meeting with people that they wanted to, right? But it's the way society is structured that actually blocks them,
2: so I want to organize this conversation because I feel like we're getting a little heady around something you said a moment ago, which is if you take democracy to its logical conclusions. And so I want to, First, let's say, like, what does it mean to take democracy? What is your answer to that question of what is democracy? And then I want to talk about some of the logical conclusions that are more radical that you pick up as threads in the book. So what is your answer to that question, what is democracy?
1: What is democracy? I think now I would say it's the people ruling, right? But that there are these questions baked into that, who the people are, how they rule. I love also Aristotle's definition of democracy, which is that the poor rule. Because democracy is a system in which the many have power. It's not a system ruled by the one or the few, but by the many. And poor people always outnumber the rich. So I think there's this, there's a class component in that. Um, And this is something that the ancient Greeks were really clear about, was that there had to be a kind of way to support The participation of the poor, of craftsmen, of workers, of regular people. And so that I think is is the challenge that we're facing in our democracy today. I say this in the preface, that we have had fights for formal political equality, expanding the suffrage, expanding the circle of inclusion, um, to break down barriers based on gender and race. But now we have to Expand democracy into the economic realm. So that that is sort of my definition of democracy, but also I think the the next horizon for it.
2: So you you talk about this working off of Elizabeth Anderson's work a little bit, right? About the ways in which corporate governance in the work sphere is deeply undemocratic, but we don't think of it as governance, and we don't think of it as amenable to to public oversight or democratic values, except in, like, the biggest, most um, large-scale regulatory ways. Like, you can't can't do child labor.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Her point, and I think it's quite profound, is that we sort of check our democratic sensibilities at the door of our jobs. You know, again, it's a kind of tyrannical relationship where your boss can tell you, you know, when you need to be somewhere, what you need to wear. uh, They control your speech. And you know this is and also the the profits from your labor flow to the to the owners. And you know there's a whole tradition of democratizing the workplace and to actually um, encouraging workers to collaborate and to run enterprises together as equals. And so I feature some of these um, these workplaces in the book, including this one wonderful place called Opportunity Threads, which is one of the last textile factories in North Carolina, in the mountains of um, Morganton, and Morganton, North Carolina, which is this this small former textile town. And it's thriving because it's run democratically. So, of course, these workers don't want to export their jobs. They want to have jobs. They want to make livings. They want to support their family. What's fascinating about this, this textile factory is that it's run by Guatemalan immigrants. And they come from a a community, they're they're Highland Mayans, they're indigenous, they come from a community that practiced uh, these sort of cooperative systems of government and self-determination. So they applied those when they came to the United States. So I think this is a, a wonderful example of sort of democracy on this very small scale, democracy in one workplace. The question is then how do you scale that up? You, you have to democratize finance, you have to democratize supply chains. So there's there's lots of challenges there. But I think it's a powerful example of democracy in the economic sphere. And I think one thing to remember, and Anderson makes this point very clearly, is that, you know, the realms we now take for granted as public, the state, wasn't, wasn't always accountable to people. People had to fight for that, right? If you live under an absolutist state, if you live in a system that is not democratic, then there's no accountability. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It doesn't matter what peasants think. So just like people had to fight to make the state a, a public domain, you know, now we can imagine making the the private realm accountable, democratic, um, egalitarian as well.
2: So let me try to inhabit the conservative objection to this. And I should say mm-hmm. um, Elizabeth Anderson will be I'm taping with her in a couple of weeks, which I'm very excited about. Uh, so she'll be on the show shortly for those interested in her work. But I think the objection you get to this is what people tend to want in their jobs is to make more money. Um, they they seem to choose jobs based on some combination of what they're doing and how much they make and what the sort of context of the work is. Are they going to be able to enjoy the work? Are they, they treated well at work? And that there are a lot of co-ops around and there have been a lot of experiments to create more democratic workplaces. But in the end, either they they have not performed well enough to become big enough that people choose them over the alternatives despite the apparent advantages they offer in in work-life balance and workplace uh, democracy, or they just have not been effective enough to survive themselves even if people wanted to choose them. And so the issue there is that in the sort of revealed way that the market operates of uh, at least as some kind of aggregator of choices, People don't want to make the trade-offs that that kind of approach would imply, just in the same way that they actually don't tend—many people don't really want to participate in political democracy either. They want to put their energy into other things or they, val- or they have other values that predominate.
1: You know, there's no denying that democracy is demanding, right? There's that old joke that freedom is an endless meeting. And I think there's truth to that. So we can't just say, oh, no, it won't take uh, more of you the The so, I think you know that has to be on the table. Do people really want democracy, which is something I wrestle with in in the in the film. You know, on the issue of uh, co-ops to kind of one way of framing this is you know is is there a kind of pragmatic reason to have democracy in the workplace right so there's the kind of moral argument right there's like it's more fair people are sharing the profits why should one person's labor be exploited but there's lots there's there's evidence that these businesses are actually you know very efficient that they are successful and that you know it's actually good management so there's a kind of you know argument for it, also based in in a more sort of economic or, or practical realm, what often the problem for, for cooperatives is actually often just that they are not able to scale because of, they don't have access to finance. So this gets into the bigger question of, you know, who controls uh, the flows of investment and, you know, are those decisions made democratically? So you can look at something like Mandragon in, in Spain, where there was a there's a large investment bank that's run cooperatively that allowed these business enterprises to flourish on a scale sort of unimaginable in the United States, and you know that's is the problem. No small democratic experiment <laughs> is sort of representative of what it would would look like on a on a bigger level. Um, so I think there, are, you know, there are real challenges thrown up by these these sort of small um, small examples, and yet I think they work on a kind of imaginative level. It's like okay, well, actually, you know, you don't need the not everyone needs a boss to work, to create a livelihood, right? Things can be run in another way.
2: You know, one of the things that 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 brings up, both in terms of the idea of workplace democracy, but also in terms of the question of whether or not people want democracy, is that in these more high-intensity versions of democracy and these more active versions of democracy, they have a big tilt towards people who want to sit in the endless meeting. They mm. they have a tilt towards people who want to show up. They have a tilt towards people who enjoy that kind of work and that kind of thinking and that kind of the sort of big group processing. And that can itself become a, 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 an undemocratic issue. I mean, you talk actually about being at Occupy Wall Street. And – sort of the radicalism of the political structures that people tried to create there, but also, and and that was a consensus-oriented political structure, not a democracy, but how much it ended up um, becoming the tool of the people who were willing to sit there all the time and hijack it for their own ends. And that question of how do you have a system that rewards participation but doesn't punish people who want to do other things with their lives seems actually like a very tough tension.
1: I agree with that. I mean, this is the thing. I'm I might be sitting here writing about politics and I organize around issues of indebtedness with a group I co-founded called The Debt Collective. So I seem like a real political animal. But I also have my artistic side and I just want to be left alone to, you know, read my books and listen to records. And and, you know, I don't wanna be involved in every decision. I don't wanna to have to. Think about whether the potholes outside of my apartment are filled or not. So, you know, I think this this is a real tension and there is a kind of self-selection problem. And it was very vivid at Occupy Wall Street where you sort of got these people who just, you know, wanted – they were happy with the idea that all life would be a meeting, you know, whereas that would just drive me, uh, drive me crazy. So I think we you know part of this is is the need to design structures that actually encourage and incentivize a much broader kind of participation. So, you know, there are you had uh, Jane Mansbridge on the show who I actually mentioned in the in the book. I I met her um when I was just beginning the sort of research phase, you know, who talked about deliberative polling or other methods of sort of getting a more broadly representative sample of people in to make decisions or to think about things together. So, you know, I think there's a there is a problem with democracy in terms of this problem in terms of this issue of self-selection. I mean, I think we see it in activist circles and then we also see it in terms of politicians and who is so eager to run for office and who thinks
2: they're so great that they should lead the world. I'll be back with my guest Astra Taylor after a quick break.
3: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Shopify.com slash box.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is
1: there.
2: Can you talk a bit about the drum circles at Occupy Wall Street? Because that a just a <laughs> hilarious discussion to me.
1: I mean, this is where yeah, drum circles... My favorite poster at Occupy Wall Street or or not what what sign said, you know, I love democracy more than I hate this drum circle. And that really resonated with me. Um, you know, the the drum circle became a a sort of fascinating problem because there was a contingent of people at Occupy Wall Street and they wanted to play the drums every hour of every day. And then there were people who wanted them to take a break or maybe cease entirely. Um, and this became quite a problem. This became um, really heated at moments. And there was sort of no structures to resolve this dilemma because it was, as you said, a sort of consensus-based system. And what I saw there was that in Occupy, sort of radicalism, in its sort of rejection of all of the flaws of the political system, right, and Occupy had a lot right. It, it, it diagnosed the problems with American politics pretty astutely, right? We don't feel our voices are heard. There's a problem of money in politics and corruption. Like, the banks got bailed out. We got sold out. Yet, you know, I was like, yes, that is all all correct. But then they sort of threw the baby out with the bathwater. So, in, you know, they got rid of checks and balances. They got rid of representation. They got rid of, um, you know, any sort of mechanisms for um, excluding people who weren't participating in good faith, right? Because they're like, okay, we're open to anyone, even those are. Those who are just here to disrupt, and so it was actually in those moments in Occupy Wall Street when I started to think, well, hold on, what, what, what do I have to draw on? What, what political understanding? What system would I advise that we work under? How would I resolve the drum circle conflict? I mean, it wasn't entirely obvious to me what to do, you know. And so that's that's actually where the seed for this whole project uh, was planted because it was this democratic experiment that was sort of beautiful in one moment and then totally chaotic in the next.
2: One of the things that struck me about that is it, it relates to what felt to me in the book, like the the tension you had the least resolution around, which is what happens when democracies make decisions that are ugly? Um, you, you write at one point that I do not accept that xenophobic policies qualify as democratic simply because they've been approved at the ballot box. Instead, such tendencies embody the tyranny of the majority. Democracy cannot be reduced to majoritarian preferences and popularity contests. And I was reading that and thinking about it. And the idea that you need to combine democracy with liberalism and individual rights is is very old and and, and makes a lot of sense. But it seemed in this there was a, a bit of an effort to protect democracy from its own dark side to if you imagine democracy as a process as opposed to an outcome, the idea that it could lead to outcomes you really don't like is I find often underplayed by the people who believe in it in a way that ultimately, I think calls it calls the whole thing a little bit into question.
1: I'm not going to dispute um your assessment. Democracy always contains a risk of its own undoing, right? Because by definition, it it, challenges its own legitimacy. I mean, that's what it means to invite people to think about how they're governed and how they want to be governed. I mean, let's go back again to ancient Greece and to that founding text of political philosophy, Plato's Republic, right, which is this famously anti-democratic text. I mean, that was only possible because he was writing in a democracy where you're allowed to debate, you're allowed to think those anti-democratic thoughts. So it, that that risk is always there. I mean, I think the thing is there is no alternative. There is no system where someone's not going to make bad decisions that will have huge, potentially catastrophic effects, right? I think a truer democracy is one in which that's less likely to happen. In the section you read, I mean, I think, you know, I was thinking about um, issues, again, of who the people are in that chapter, issues of exclusion and inclusion, and um, and what it means to exist in a world that is deeply unequal in a material in a material sense So I think this gets back to the question for me of on a basic level what does democracy demand it demands political equality and because the people are deciding as equals but that political equality necessitates economic equality it necessitates some degree of economic leveling <laughs> economic egalitarianism and so I think in that in a situation like that, which is not the situation we live in, where power was more broadly shared, Um, I think some of the problems that now plague us would be mitigated, right? Um, But that is not to say that people couldn't go off the rails. And I think we we have to just accept that. I don't think that there's any system that's going to be able to stop people from making bad choices or doing bad things.
2: It seems to me that if you're talking about a pure democracy, right, assume we can just say democracy is that every, for, for argument's sake, legal resident of the United States of America over the age of 18 makes decisions in a free way and the majority rules. It it always seems to me that the, the, the tension in that, the way people can imagine it playing out, is a tension between um, equality and scapegoating. And... You you hear sort of class based thinkers, which I, th- I think class is very is very present in the book. There's a belief that if people had either started with more economic equality or had more democracy, what they would vote towards is more of a, um, a more of a leveling of class, more of an economic egalitarianism. And then there's a, another read of it, and and you quote Cornell West um, re- reflecting this fear that often what they will do or what they have done at other times is vote to make themselves more powerful by making other people less powerful, that what people care about is not so much their own economic um, equality, although they do care about that, but that they actually want their group to be on top of the other groups, that the, the, the sort of power of their identity becomes really important. And that in in a democracy like that, you hear this sometimes where, you know, richer people are worried that, they're, that everything they have will just be expropriated, but in a, in a more direct way, that what you will get is something like super Donald Trump, um, where it is just voting for the wall and voting to disenfranchise more people. I mean, just this morning, he's talking about uh, passing more voter ID laws. And that the way that what people will ultimately prove themselves to want, at least on some level, or at least one of the things that you can elicit people to want is they will become more powerful by making other people less powerful. or They'll become more respected by making other people less respected. And it's that it's that tension there of what i what will people choose? Will they choose egalitarianism or, the, or will they choose inequality that benefits them that seems to me to be where a lot of the hopes and fears of this conversation rest,
1: you know, I quote uh, the the most famous democratic paradox, Rousseau's paradox called the founding paradox. How do you create a democratic people out of an undemocratic people, right? And and that is not a particularly optimistic view of humanity. It's saying, okay, maybe we don't start out intrinsically as Democrats, uh, but that is it's a sensibility that has to be cultivated. I mean, what he's getting at in that paradox is that, you know, how do we get a democratic society? Because it would seem like you'd have to have sort of dem- people oriented towards democracy to even create the, the system uh, that would then perpetuate a democratic reality and coexistence. But the point is that, you know, it's not just there in our in our natures, you know, maybe it's part of our nature. Right. But we also have other tendencies. So how do we bring how do we bring that out? How do we this is where we have to get into that democratic argument where we have to get over into a a struggle. It's like, how do you convince people that scarcity thinking that if someone else has more, you have less or vice versa is not reality right that it is or is not the only way to operate and so this is where you know political philosophy you know falls apart in a way and and you have to just sort of get in the muck of of politics and and persuasion and say you know your Your well-being, your strength is not dependent on somebody else's exploitation, whose interests are being served, who, you know, is directing your attention downwards instead of um, upwards. And so I don't think that there's – you know, I think we can look at human history and it's a mix. This is what I say in the opening of the book. You can look at human history and say, oh, my God, it's a history of oppression, enslavement, imperialism, you know – Or you can look at history and say, oh, wow, look at this collaboration, look at this solidarity, look at this expansion of who the we is. So, you know, I think we have to pick a side and just, you know, and fight and try to cultivate a different type of people.
2: I like that a lot. I think there's a real danger in conversations about political systems that people want to architect political systems as a substitute for doing politics. But the idea is you can just set up a game that your values will win in. Um, because you don't want to like do the work of fighting for your values, uh, and and I also think that's a really dangerous tendency. Uh, I think there, there's a real tendency to to underestimate the reality of disagreement and, and and the work of persuasion and and the reality of losing. You know how often even in a perfect political system you will lose and be frustrated, and how often just politics is going to hurt. And there's something in the old like Max Weber, politics is a, the slow boring of hard boards that That I really thrill to. I, I think that if it's if it's worth it, it's worth all those setbacks. and And I think that's something that is not taught. I think that too much of the narrative is of triumph, big triumphs, and not just kind of endless grinding, pushing. but put but pushing such that things are getting a little bit better, hopefully most of the time.
1: well, I mean, think, you know, right, because we tend to emphasize these culminations, these moments, the signing of the Civil Rights Act, right? or these sort of epic breakthroughs, and not all of the people who participated, but in decades where things went nowhere or things got got worse. Um, you know, I also, it's interesting, too, to think, you know, in this country, there's such a sort of mythic attachment to the founding fathers and to trying to interpret the true meanings of, of their intent, you know, as they crafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And a lot of it was just compromise. <laughs> a lot of it was just like, this is what we can make happen. It, it wasn't like some perfect theory that came from the ether and then they wrote you know in in majesty it's like a lot of it is just what you can actually get the human beings you're in conversation with to to just accept so that you can move on and so i think we have to remember that too i mean there's this is why again i think paradoxes are useful because democracy is theory and practice it's action and reflection so it, you know it requires this kind of intellectualism this headiness and then it's just really you know Trying to get stuff done and hoping you don't lose ground and praying that you might gain a bit.
2: Let's be imaginative. Let's like get out of the muck of our democracy and, and talk about where it could go. You have a really interesting discussion in the book of some of the legal efforts being conducted to give animals rights. There's an idea that animals should, in some sense, be understood as at least part of the we. Whether or not they can vote, they they, they they should have some kind of claim to protection as more than a thing. They should have a claim to rights as a sentient feeling being. Can you talk a bit about that? I'd be, I'd be curious to hear also just how you think about that.
1: Few of us realize that you know there already are non-human legal persons. That's what a a corporation is, right? So there are our, our system when you sort of pause to really look at it, is much stranger than we think. And I, I and so that's one one piece of work I'm trying to do is just sort of, hey, actually things are kind of weird already. So, um what if we embrace that and expanded uh this idea of of personhood beyond the human and but beyond the the corporate entity as well. And that sense, you know, for me, um, I'm looking at the way that we have drawn boundaries within the category of the human, right? So as we said, there were times when women were excluded, people who were enslaved, et cetera. So this is a trajectory that I think is not is not finished. And I was looking um, at these towns across the United States, dozens of towns which are trying to put up resistance to uh, fossil fuel extraction, usually to fracking and you know they they're small communities without a lot of power without a lot of resources and so they're kind of these zones where you know the resources are taken from them and they're left with the sort of they're left with the pollution they're left with the the consequences and they they have no no way of fighting back so what they've done is actually inserted into their town rules the rights of nature they're they're trying to expand this idea of what What entities matter in a in in a democracy? So this is something that's already happening in the United States. Uh, Rights of nature have been included in the Constitution in Ecuador. Uh, You know, different bodies of water have been given uh, legal status. New Zealand and India, and so I just was, you know, this. I I think this is fascinating because part of you know the big the big problem we're facing today is climate change, right? Which is one problem with driving it might be the fact that we are not taking anything but ourselves into account. <laughs> and so it's this, you know, I think there's something there's something powerful in this idea that the, the demos could be expanded to include um, other beings, other entities, and that actually there might be a benefit for us, right? Because by treating the rest of the natural world as property, as a resource to be exploited, and not as something that's in our broader community— is actually not taking us into a very positive place.
2: Let me try to make a make an argument or explore a paradox mm-hmm. here uh, that uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to say very clearly. So one of the things that I think is interesting in this space is that it gets to this question of what faculties do we ask of someone or something to be included in the demos? So your sister, Sunara Taylor, has written a beautiful book called Be Suburban, which is about the connections between the disability rights movement and the animal rights movement. And and, and her point, um, or one of her points in that book, is that we have a tendency to allow creatures to participate based on a hierarchy of certain capabilities or ideas of intelligence. And that when you begin looking at it, the way that disabled people have been excluded is very echoed in a lot of the language we use to mistreat animals. Um, it doesn't matter because they are not able to X. And then I, when I was reading that, it was about it was a while back. It was about the time I was reading um, Yuval Noah Harari's, uh, one of his new books. And he makes the argument, and he's also a, a vegan and, and very interested in animal rights. And he basically says, look, we're on the cusp of inventing something much smarter than we are in AI. And whether you believe that, just take it as a, as a, for, the, for the argument here. And if it is really the principle that we have put down in our society that the thing you need to be to be politically um, included is intelligence, well, if we're about to create something endlessly replicable and much smarter than we are, as much smarter than we are as we are than a dog or a pig— then, well, what claim will we have when it wants to mistreat us? What will we be able to say when we say, no, 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 you shouldn't just be able to uh, plunder us um, because that's exactly how we acted? And there's an, there's an interesting hard question there in terms of if, the way, if what we're really saying is that the thing that gives you political rights and moral worth is that you're able to you know, read a complex book, well, how, how much protection does that really give us in the long run? And are we really comfortable with what that implies about who gets compassion and who doesn't?
1: It's a fascinating question. And again, I you know, the disability stuff is exactly right. And I didn't want to directly cite my own sister in my book. I felt like that would be nepotism or something. But she was a huge influence on me. Because what she points out is that, as you say, reason is not the baseline for including human beings in the polity, right? So... Um, So extending that uh, framework means that there can be other ways of including, you know, including animals who have been discriminated against, she would say, on the basis of of this this sort of human projection that they don't have reason. They don't reason the way we do. Um, You know, I... I mean, I think, you know, for me, the animal stuff is really, it's sort of core to who I am and how I, uh, my very first project as a kid, my first writing project was was making this this magazine called Care, Kids for Animal Rights and the Environment. You know, and it was me at 11 years old sort of railing against the adult world. Um, And my operating theory at the time, and I was, you know, a little kid, was that basically adults lied to us. Uh, to to us being uh, us children, and that if I just told the truth to the kids, the truth of what was happening to the animals and to the environment, that the kids would rise up and you know and and join me in this ecological. Animal rights revolution and what was the but the takeaway of that experience? You know, I did multiple issues of this magazine. I tried my best to rope other kids into it. Was that actually, uh, you know, kids didn't care that much, right? And that that this idea that I would just sort of tell them the truth of what was happening didn't sort of galvanize them to join my join my uh, my cause. And so this is why. Um, you know, I want to approach these issues, I guess, from from a different way, not from the sort of typical animal rights perspective, but from the sort of democratic perspective of like, yeah, who are we to exclude and what will happen next? Because I I felt when I was writing that part that I was really, I was like, you know, my 11-year-old self would be happy this isn't in, in the book, but it's also, there's there's a part of me that's also, you know, no longer believes in this kind of classic deliberative framework, right, where you can just Um, tell people facts and have an argument about something. So I wanted to get at these issues of animals and and ecology in a a more surprising way.
2: All right, we need to squeeze in a quick break, but we'll be right back. There's a lot of work done in a quiet way in our own minds by who is included in the structures we care about. And it's so easy to change that. It's so easy to change the who is the we. I mean, in my household... Right, I have two dogs. Um, and the two dogs are part of the we. Like if you <laughs> like if anything happened to those dogs, it would be an unbelievable crisis. And yet, um, in the kind of broader, you know, broader world, obviously, Dogs are sometimes treated that way, but, but animals that are very similar or not. And to take this off of just animals, I mean, you get into this question of citizenship. You get in, into it with felons. You get into it with uh, children as well. You get into it with the future. You have this wonderful line in one of the later chapters of what if climate change is a violation of the constitutional rights of those yet to be born? And something that I think about is a real branching path here. Sometimes you'll say this and people will come back at you with a scarcity argument. You know, why are you worrying about X when there's Y? Why worry about how chickens are treated when there are poor people? Why worry about how poor people are treated when there's climate change? Why worry about climate change when AI is going to kill us all in 20 years? And in my experience, it goes the other way. And and I just saw actually a really interesting study of this, that the people who learn to expand that circle and care about um, communities or creatures that are more marginalized— end up being able to do it for many more things. And so there's this fascinating, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I just read in the Washington Post the other day, this study showing that, you know, if you care about animal rights, you're vastly more likely to care about um, poverty and racism and other things. And if you don't care about any of them, you're vastly less likely to care about any of them. There's something about building the muscle of recognizing oppression and injustice and building the muscle of extending compassion and being willing to, to try to bring others into your we that is it 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 works across everything it's not it's it doesn't make it smaller it's not like there's only so much room in the circle the circle can get very big and that that is a place where i think that people often have the wrong intuitive idea that if we expand it to one more then there's not room for someone else um it's actually the process of expansion begets expansion
1: I agree with that. I mean, I think there's there's this idea that compassion is a scarce resource when it's actually quite infinite. For me, the democratic impulse and democracy and solidarity aren't the same thing, but for me personally, they're very very connected, which is sort of how can we bridge differences, right? So there's all these different identities and and ways in which our society is divided, and for me solidarity is the sort of impetus the sort of thing that we need so that we can see we're all in this together and and expand the circle of inclusion and solidarity i personally just feel that solidarity doesn't have to be limited to my my species i also have a you know a more lefty analysis when we think about animals which is just the basic idea that you know animals shouldn't be property um and that that there's an attachment to animals as property within our current economic and political system, right? And and for me, uh the process of democracy is also one of decommodification, of thinking about what what spheres of life don't need to be left to the market, what things shouldn't be treated as commodities. And um and so that's also, you know, very much a place that I'm coming from is, you know, on what grounds do we own other
2: lives? You gestured to this a bit ago when you were talking about the communities resisting fracking. But there are in places an effort, uh, just in the same way we've made corporations into people, to say that a river should have rights, that a forest should have rights, that there is some claim to protection for other living things um, that are non-sentient, at least not in the way we think about it. Uh, Could you talk a bit about that project?
1: This is a project that has its roots – I mean, if you want to take a much longer view in actually various indigenous traditions where there's a kind of – assumption and just a, a knowledge that <laughs> that who counts as the people isn't just literally the human beings in your community. So there are some people who who put that that front and center. I started reporting on it because I was reporting on these small towns who were engaged in these very local battles against fossil fuel extraction. And the the basic idea is that you know towns have the ability to make laws. Now, Those that doesn't mean it will necessarily be upheld by the state or by the federal government, but that why not put some sort of sand in the gears of the machine and to just use when you don't have any power to just try something new. And so towns have said, OK, yeah, we we actually are stripping corporations of legal personhood and we're giving legal personhood to the natural environment, to the rivers, to the streams, to the watersheds. And this is something that uh, you know right now seems fairly eccentric, but what's what's interesting about it is the fight back that has been um, put into place by these by these companies, by these electric companies and gas companies, because they're taking the threat very seriously, because obviously it's a threat to their fundamental business model. So. You know, I'm not sure where this will go. These might just be the vanguard, you know, the vanguard <laughs> expressions that 100 years from now will be like, OK, yeah, that was the sort of beginning of a whole new paradigm. And, you know, the the future is unwritten. But I think there's something very powerful, uh, you know, again, at this moment of ecological crisis, of like we need to start thinking in new
2: ways. And I want to pick up on, on the future as a term there, because in some ways, the one of these that feels the most at hand, the one that wouldn't require us to believe anything all that different than what we believe now, it would just require us to follow what we believe now, is the idea that there should be more of a claim for future generations on our current actions. Um, And You can imagine this in a lot of different ways. I think people on the left consistently frame it in terms of climate change, that it is a violation of future generations to destroy the ecosystem that nourished us and force them to deal with and live with the consequences. On the right you often hear it about debt. Um you know whether or not they follow it you hear the argument made that people are voting themselves benefits in the in the in the current context and not paying for the cost and that's a a, a burden being placed on on future generations. So wherever you come at this from I feel like there is a a, a rel, like at least some soft recognition that our descendants should have some claim that at least there's a a moral violation taking place but there's nothing in law that gives them representation and there's no way in our democracy that we actually try to instantiate that i mean we don't not only do we not age weight voting but we you know you it doesn't seem to me that the world would be worse off if 16-year-olds voted or 15-year-olds voted or hell. Like, honestly, oftentimes 12-year-olds seem to have their heads on more straight than some of the people participating in the political system now. So uh, I'd love you to talk a bit about this idea that there should be more of of an inclusion of the future in our present democratic decision-making.
1: It is a bit of a cliche, right? You know, think of the children, think of the future. And yet it's something we don't Really do. And as you just said, it's not something that is written into our legal code. There's no representative of of generations to come. So again, the book is structured in these paradoxes. Each chapter is attention, so the local and the global, coercion and choice, freedom and equality. But my favorite chapter to write was the one on time, the present and the future. So what is democracy's relationship to time? You know, are we being bad ancestors? as we stare climate change in the face. But there are all sorts of other issues, too, I think, where we're failing. But what I I was fascinated by is actually the fact that it's not just that the unborn don't have a, a say in our democracy, but just how weighted our system is in favor of a sort of small number of dead people. And this is, I was inspired by the conservative critic, you know, he's just a great writer, whether or not you agree with him, but Chesterton, and he said something like, you know, progress is the most horrible form of disenfranchisement, right? I mean, you're just telling the dead that they don't have a say anymore. And so what we need is sort of tradition to live and abide by, by the rules that they've made to honor them. And of course, there's a more left-wing tradition that says, no, we need progress, we need change, we need revolution. Like, who are the, not just the old, but the dead to tell us what to do with our lives and how to live? So this is something that that is, you know, a real debate in political philosophy. Edmund Burke, the conservative thinker, also a great writer, you know, had a big debate with Thomas Paine, who, of course, was on the side of change and revolution. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, you know, at one point advocated for laws, sort of self imploding every generation um, so that that the, the dead wouldn't wait the living down. And so, you know, I think there's something to this and, and a question, I think, that I don't fully sort of theorize in the chapter, which is, well, okay, what would it look like? What would it look like to have proxies for the future somehow incorporated into our political system? What would it look like to expand the demos to include people who aren't here yet, but we hope will be? Um, And I think that that's something that we're I I feel like more people feel that that need, right, which is is a, a there's something broken about our political system that we are operating with such a short term horizon. And, you know, it has to do with our economic system. It has to do with the way that capitalism is so intertwined with our political system and. And capitalism has a rather short attention span. The average trade, you know, only lasts for a couple of seconds, and and you know you need to sort of have a uh, you need to have have profits uh, immediately this quarter, or or you're going to be punished. So the short termism and this presentism is is baked into our society and all sorts of. Ways, but I think it's a, a fundamental political issue, and we should take it from the sort of cliche of think of the children to actually really thinking of the children. What would it mean to include the next generation or seven generations from now?
2: It's funny you you frame that as a fight in political philosophy. I think of that really as a fight in political psychology. That there, I mean, I think there's a lot of evidence now that. Some of us are innately much more tradition-oriented, and some of us are much more future-oriented, right? There's conscientiousness and openness to experience. And I always see it in myself, um, I think about what are the ways in which I process the world that just make it hard for me to understand what other people are saying and, and why they're saying it. And one of them is this, like, if you sit down and you, you could just convince me the founding fathers believe something was right that I believe is wrong, I just wouldn't care. I mean, I can't, you know, I, I recognize we live under constitutional structure, so I care about um, operating within the construct of the laws because I think that that matters for for running a for running a system that works in the long run. But it just doesn't matter much to me um, if people working under a very different context thought something different. You know, there you'll you'll see these debates play out of like what did Ronald Reagan really think about something? And I'm always just like, who cares? Like <laughs> he just had so much less information about where we are now than, than, than other than than we do. Um, but then you know, I'll talk to people who feel very differently about this, I had George Well on the podcast a, a month or two ago. And just coming at it from absolutely the opposite perspective, I mean, psychologically, it's very clear that he has a reverence for past thinkers and a mistrust of presentism that is just very different than mine. And I, I, I just think about that as a, as a fascinating, I don't think it's something we can argue out, right? I don't think it's something a political philosophy can, can decide because I think it's, it's very built into this question of, do you look at the world and, and find that it pushes you towards tradition? Or do you look at the world and see change and find yourself thrilling to it?
1: I think it's more than psychology, though. It so often has to do with where you're situated. You know, the people who are, maybe there are, maybe there are just thrill seekers who want sort of, uh, you know, creative destruction and and want, you know, change for change's sake. But a lot of people who want change desire it because they're being oppressed, because something is untenable or unbearable about the present, Right that they are being excluded, that they do not have equal rights and representation. And so that, you know, I actually listened to that episode of your podcast, and I felt the problem was almost like an empathy gap. It's like, well, imagine the system from somebody else's perspective, right? Imagine the system from the perspective of someone who just happened to be born on the wrong side of the Rio Grande or the Mediterranean. Imagine... This system from the perspective of a woman born two generations before you, that sort of imaginative leap, because I think so many of the people who have fought for democratic change, I mean, looking historically, have been people who were on the margins, who were outsiders, who were excluded, and who were saying, you know, this, we can't take this anymore. Some of those people obviously had a temperament where they were bold, they were brave, they were ready to just put it all on the line, but it's also about where they were situated in the power dynamics, Part of what I wanted to do in the book was to put that motor of democracy front and center, right? Democracy isn't just this brainchild of these founding fathers, these geniuses, some gift they've bequeathed us, but actually something that's really been propelled and expanded by people who weren't even included and that that has been – the most important dynamic and and the dynamic that I'm most grateful for looking back and looking forward.
2: I love the way you put that. The the only thing I wonder about this, and, and I don't even know if it's an answerable question, is which one comes first? The way you talk about the system there, the way you talk about these motivations for change emerging out of empathy is certainly the way I experience it. But I always wonder, is it the empathy that's coming first or the openness to it? Which is to say that when when people who look at the same world I do and say, no, 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 slow down, one way of saying it is it's just like it's a it's a defense of them, but sometimes it's not really defense of them. I mean, it's a, it's an axiomatic idea on the left that that oftentimes people are voting against their own self-interests. And I I wonder sometimes if that kind of openness to hearing that things are wrong comes from um comes from first an, an orientation that you're willing to believe things are wrong um that you're willing to kind of say like it would be better if they were different and then and then you're open to people saying this would be a good way for it to be different versus if the sort of doors and windows are closed a little bit in your mind in that way that the people who came before you were probably right and then somebody comes and says they're wrong you're not open to listening to that in the few, in, in the first place i can't answer this i just i'm always curious what's the true motivation the one the one that we are able to argue out and kind of like, this is why it makes sense? Or is there something happening before that that is separating me from the people I'm arguing with such that the argument is not really resolvable?
1: It's interesting. I and mean, it makes me think, and I don't know if this is really related, but it makes me think how, you know, research shows that the, the communities that are the most closed to diversity, to migration, that are the most xenophobic are those with the least diverse populations, Mm -hmm. right? That there's also something that's just about experience. What have you experienced? What's, What's common to you? What do you take for granted? And when political arguments are just that, when they're just arguments, like you should believe this, you should believe that, they can become very futile, right? But when it's something that's rooted in experience, it's a whole different ball game. And so I, I don't know, you know, the issues where it's like do people have certain temperaments, what's our human nature, what do you know, I'm not sure. I think we're pretty malleable and it so depends on you know our life experience and where we're situated in in the social and political hierarchy. That that frames a lot.
2: I'll just note for people, I think that if people are interested in this topic, the the Will Wilkinson episode from a few months back has a lot here and and, and also on this idea that uh sort of reflecting the same conversation we're having there's this issue of are the people living in these very undiverse places are they not having experiences or have they chosen those places because they don't want those experiences how much are how much are the difference in political in in political tendencies in different densities of geography now reflecting that people of different psychologies choose different places in a way that in a way that wasn't always true um but it's a it's an unbelievably fascinating question it it also it's not a perfect bridge to this, but one other thing that I want to make sure we cover, you've just, I thought, a fascinating discussion towards the end of the book about the idea of using lottery as a more fundamental idea in democracy and how that was true in Athens and so it's very rooted in in the political system, but you rarely see it done today. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I hadn't encountered it, but it was it was really striking to, to see it laid out.
1: Another word for a lottery-based political system is sortition. So, Aristotle said that democracy is lottery and that aristocracy is elections. So this completely goes against everything we're taught, right? We're taught that democracy is elections and because we have elections, we are a democracy. So there's sort of the apex of the democratic experience to the ancient Greeks, this would just be ridiculous. They'd say, well, no, you obviously are living in an aristocracy or an oligarchy because the rich and the well-born and the persuasive win elections, right? Um, and, you know, that's that's definitely seems to be true today. I mean, the average senator has over $3 million of wealth. The average congressperson has over a million. I mean, they're hardly representative of the of the people writ large. The interesting thing about the ancient Greeks is that they had very complex systems. So, you know, of course they didn't live in a digital age like us, but they used the tools that they had to create this sort of technologies of randomness so that their their system couldn't be corrupted. So I think there's also something for us to learn from that. And, And essentially it was as though... Any person could expect to serve in Congress at some point in their life. So you'd be called up to serve in the, the council, which you know had to basically do the business of running the city, almost everything except the sort of military uh, enterprises. And then of course there was the the big assembly where you know every citizen was sort of expected to attend. And so it's it's quite interesting to think about our system today because we have a kind of vestige of this in juries, this idea that citizens should be called up. At random to do a democratic duty and to make very important decisions, decisions about punishment, decisions that might be life and life or death. So we have the sort of residue of this idea that this could be a workable model. Um, why why did this idea of lottery emerge? Well, part of it is just because there's something good about chance. It's like, okay, <laughs> you know, let the fates decide. Um and so it was a way of sort of of instituting fairness, but also because again it was it created a more representative model instead of positions of power just going to the sort of predictable few. And so I think there's something here for for us to to learn from. And um and more and more people are thinking about sortition. Uh, I don't know if do you know that uh, it was used in Ireland in these citizens assemblies. Have you looked into that? No, I haven't. I didn't know that. Yeah, so you know I'm sure all of your listeners know that there was the. Referendum on abortion rights, right? Which basically, you know, Ireland un- unexpectedly, and 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 I'm very happy about it. Lots of people are very happy about it. You know, basically, the the people voted to reassess abortion laws and abortion restrictions and sort of move into what I hope is the 21st century. But that decision was actually built on this basis of suggestions made by a citizens' assembly. So 99 citizens were were randomly called up. They were representative of the population that went from sort of 18 to in their 80s. And over the course of five months, they took recommendations from experts. They listened to different community groups. And then they deliberated. They got into groups and they talked. And their recommendations to the broader society were, hey, let's rewrite the Constitution. This is actually— Holding us back. This is not the way that things should be. So what it did was it created a kind of sense that the people had deliberated, right, and that there was some democratic process. And it was a and why it was legitimate is that it was it was lottery. It was random. Um, so I think there's there's all sorts of interesting ways that this could be incorporated into our politics, um, into maybe even our sort of workplace democracies, into our activist groups like. You know, maybe the people who want to run for office actually should be um, barred from doing so. Like, if you're too eager to roll, maybe that means you shouldn't—you <laughs> shouldn't be allowed to do it. Um, you know, and then it mitigates against corruption, right? Because you're not like sitting there dialing for dollars trying to get reelected. So there's all sorts of ancillary benefits. So I'm—I'm I'm for you know putting. I, I would say one house run by sortition would be a kind of an interesting experiment to run.
2: I think it would make a lot more sense than one house run entirely by state boundaries.
1: I mean, that's the thing. When you realize how arbitrary our system is, the the role of geography, for example, in our current system, and you're just like, let's have a lottery. Like, you can't get any more silly.
2: (laughs) I think that's a good place to to come to an end. So let me ask you what's always our final question, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience?
1: Three books I would recommend to the audience. So I just found on my shelf the other day a copy of How Democratic is the American Constitution by Robert Dahl. That's a great book. It's... It's, what. What's great is it's just so mellow in presentation, but very <laughs> radical because you just yeah. realize how how ridiculous our our sort of operating logic is. Another short book that's a real pleasure and insightful is Angela Davis's Abolition Democracy. So she asks questions like, you know, how democratic is it to be included into an unjust system? Right. What What is the horizon of inclusion? Uh, and I would also recommend a book called Two Faces of American Freedom, The Two Faces of American Freedom by Aziz Rana, a legal historian at Cornell, who looks at the way that liberty and oppression have been bound up since colonial days in this country. And so it gets to a kind of paradox, which, you know, we, we now know that I love those paradoxes.
2: Astrid Taylor, thank you very much.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
2: That is a show. Thank you to Astra Taylor. I love something she said in there, that our system is weirder. It is already weirder than we think. I think it is so easy to miss, um, to, to just absorb into our baselines every weird decision we've made, both the ones that seem on the edges of the things we're doing, like the corporations or people, although that's quite foundational in our law, even if it's not always foundational in our thinking, but also the ones that are just normalized, like who gets to participate and why, and the idea that animals become things. There's so much that if you're walking into this, with fresh eyes would seem crazy to you. Um, There's so much that seems crazy to kids. That's one of the reasons I was making that point earlier, that there's a lot when kids ask why, like, no, no, we have a good answer, but actually our answers are not that good. (laughs) What we have is a good rationalization, not a good answer. Um, And sometimes it's worth trying to have fresh enough eyes that you can see that. Uh, So I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you did too. Um, Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, uh, to Roger Karma, our researcher, to Jeff Geld, producer, you can always email me with guest ideas, feedback, whatever, at Show at Vox.com. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast production.